gospel of Jesus, <clears throat> the power of God to all those who believe. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that uh, as we read your gospel, as we hear it preached, we know something of the power of God, and that your spirit would apply to our lives. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everybody. A few weeks ago, I was uh, traveling back from Belgium. I have to go over there once a year to meet in person with doctoral faculty. I do research with them. And uh, I'm really not a huge fan of flying, but flying over and flying back is, is still special time. Because as the father of a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, the only movies that we see in the theater are cartoons. <laughs> and so I've got a, a nine-hour flight from the eastern seaboard to Brussels where I can watch movies that aren't animated. And it's pretty exciting to me. Uh, on the way home, I watched Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is a documentary about Fred Rogers. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Have you seen it? I'm just curious. It's, it's very good. You should see it if you have not seen it. And one of the most poignant scenes in the film had to do with a man named Francois Clemens. And Francois Clemens is, uh, is Officer Clemens in the show. If you remember the show, if you watched it growing up, like I did, and Clemens faced two pretty serious obstacles in 1968. Obstacle number one is uh, Francois Clemens is a black man, and in 1968, with, uh, with civil rights in full swing, the civil rights movement, then maybe, maybe the pressures of being a black man uh, in America, while always very difficult, maybe they were acute in 1968 because his person is being litigated publicly, you see. And the other uh, huge obstacle that uh, Francois Clemens faced was that he was also a, a gay man, and that was uh, an, an open secret on the set. And so if you know the show, Won't You Be My Neighbor, at the end of every episode, Fred Rogers looks into the camera and he says to America's children, I like you just the way you are. And uh, Francois Clemens had been working on the set for two years, and after two years he walked up to Fred Rogers and, and he said, you know, you said that today, and it felt like you were saying it just to me. And Fred Rogers said, I've been saying it just to you for two years. You just heard me today. And as he's telling this story, uh, his voice is cracking up. And he gets a, a tear on his cheek, and then he breaks into a full-blown sob. And he says, my whole life, I'd wanted a man to tell me he liked me just the way I was. My father wouldn't do it. My teachers wouldn't do it. My coaches wouldn't do it. Fred Rogers was the first man to ever tell me that. I don't know if you know this, Fred, Fred Rogers uh, is a, was a Christian, went to a seminary, and trained to be a Presbyterian minister when he thought he could do a better job communicating what he understood of the gospel on TV. And uh, for me watching that, there's a, a powerful communication of the gospel in, in a certain kind of way to a man that just was not accustomed to hearing it, you see. And so Christians talk a lot about unconditional love. We talk a lot about receiving God's love as a free gift, as well as passing it on as a free gift. But what does it really mean for you and I to receive God's love as a free gift? What does it really mean for you and I to pass it on as a free gift? I want to talk with you about uh, that today because we need to talk about it. It can be provocative. It can be challenging. It can make us super uncomfortable. Uh, but I want to talk about it. And I want to use Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 8. And I want to ask these questions as we walk through this. Uh, who received the good news? That's a pretty critical question as we look at the Gospels and try and get to the root of what does it mean to receive and give uh, God's message of unconditional love. What was the good news that was being proclaimed by Jesus and by the disciples in first century Palestine 
And last but not least, who deserves to hear it? Yeah. So these three questions, I want to orient our discussion as we spend some time together this morning. And here's question number one. Who received the good news? Well, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus sent the 12 to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He tells them, don't go to Samaria, don't go to the land of the Gentiles. We know he went to both in his own time. We know he did ministry to both in his own time. We know there's a day coming when he commissions the disciples to go to the Gentiles. And he commissions the disciples to go to Samaria. Now's not that time. And so you want to kind of ask, well, why? Why are they restricted in their mission at this time? And I think it's a pretty simple, simple answer. Uh, they're restricted because uh, God promised to send a Savior from Israel. It's a Savior for the whole world, but the Savior comes from Israel. And so the fulfillment of these prophecies, this person that God is going to send, the, the people who have the prophecies, who can read them, who can evaluate them, who can say, this is the one we've been waiting for, uh, are from Israel. Jesus the Messiah can only establish himself in Israel. Having established himself, he can go out into the whole world, but he restricts his ministry to Israel because right now the time is let's establish the good news that God has sent the man that we've been waiting for. Don't go to these places. But he also says they're supposed to go to a particular kind of person. They're not supposed to go to Israel writ large. It's, a, it's an interesting little phrase. It says go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's not just a throwaway. What in the world does Jesus mean by the lost sheep? Well, I think we can get a good idea of what Jesus meant by the lost sheep if we look at the people that he himself spent time with. We know that Jesus spent an enormous amount of time with sick people. We know that Jesus spent an enormous amount of time with lepers. He spent an enormous amount of time with the blind and the handicapped. And what you need to know about these groups in first century Palestine is they are generally assumed to be uh, social outcasts and they're social outcasts for good reason. When Jesus and his disciples stumble on a blind man in John chapter 9, this is the question the disciples have when they see a blind man. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he's born blind. So there's a simple assumption from a healthy first century Jew when he sees a leper, when he sees a, 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 a leper, not a leper. I think the <laughs> assumption if you see a leper is to run. You know, when he sees a leper or a blind man, or a paralytic, you need to know that they're all, this is a group of social outcasts. And making them outcasts is morally and intellectually justified. Because the question batting around in their mind is who sinned to make it so. Jesus spends time with them. So maybe these kinds of people are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We know that Jesus spent an enormous amount of time with traitors. If you've ever read the New Testament and you feel a, a certain amount of vitriol towards tax collectors, the vitriol is there because the tax collectors are traitors to their own people. They've made a deal with the Romans that their homes and their families would be saved 
they would be able to get income if they extort from their fellow Jews to pay taxes to the Romans. But we know Jesus spent time with these kinds of people. He spent time with traitors. Jesus spent time with rough, violent men. And we know that because the, the disciples whom he's commissioning are rough, violent men. Many of them are rough, violent men. We know that Jesus spent an enormous amount of time with prostitutes. Some of the women closest to him in his whole world were prostitutes. We know he spent time with thieves. We know he spent time with adulterers. And the question I have for you is, does this help us think through what Jesus means when he says, go to the lost sheep of Israel? Because these are the kinds of people Jesus himself goes to. There's a theory uh, called social identity theory conceived by a social psychologist named Omri Tashvel. And this, this is what he had to say. He argued that our sense of self-worth is often rooted in our social identity, the group we belong to. And we have a vested interest in promoting the good name of our social group. And he calls this the, our in-group. At the same time, we have a vested interest in putting down those who don't belong to our social group. And he called that the out-group. How this plays out in first century Palestine is that the in-group are morally upright, patriotic, religiously observant Jews. And the out-group are tax collectors, prostitutes, traitors, the sick, the lame, the blind, the poor, and the sinner. And so when Jesus sent his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he was sending the disciples to preach to the cultural out-group of first century Palestine. What was the good news that they heard? That's the second question. I was driving back from Myrtle Beach about a week ago, and while I was there, there's this general sense of foreboding. We were up there for a, a cadet retreat. We took uh, 40 and some super adult chaperones up there for about 50 up to Myrtle Beach for the weekend. Great weekend. Baptized three, renewed the commitment of two. Awesome, awesome weekend. But while we're up there, there's this general sense of foreboding that the water is coming. The water's coming this way, and the rivers are going to rise, and they're going to crest, and they're going to destroy communities. I spoke to a, a man at Trinity Myrtle Beach in the choir, and he said the water's already a foot in his house, and they were predicting by the time it was done, his house would be totally submerged. A friend of mine named Stuart. If you remember Stuart, you can pray for Stuart. And as I'm driving home, we had to go through Georgetown, and... All of a sudden, the road is totally congested with military vehicles, American flags on the antenna, and it communicated something. You guys are scared, and there's something big coming, but your government is here with the full force of its military. They can solve this thing. That's what it communicated. When governments show up in towns, they always communicate authority, and power. When your government shows up to your town, they can communicate a sense of security and provision. This kind of idea that we have your back. With all of our power, all of our resources, we have your back. And Jesus sends his disciples out to do what? The kingdom of God's at hand. To make a pronouncement of a government. The kingdom of God's at hand. And he gives them authority and power to do things. To heal the sick. 
to heal the blind, to cast out demons, to make lepers whole again, to raise the dead. And that's communicating something really powerful. The kingdom of God's at hand. In the same way that National Guards suddenly arrive in a time of crisis, the disciples are a symbol that God's government's rolled into town with power, not only to banish illness, but to banish death and the devil. But it's not just what it means that they come into town with this message. It's who it's meant for, you see. It was meant for the out-group. It was meant for the lost sheep of Israel. The people who had spent their whole lives never knowing what it meant for anyone to roll into town and, and say, we've got your back. Now God and his people are rolling into town saying, we've got your back. And it's a pretty shocking thing, you know. I think it's still shocking. There's uh, a Flannery O'Connor story called Revelation. I don't know if you've read it. It's about a woman named Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin's greatest fear is being part of the outgroup. It's her greatest fear in the whole world. And that means for her, being dirty and poor, ugly and sick. She's the opposite of all these things. She's upstanding. She's religious. She knows the lines in the hymns being played in the doctor's office where she's waiting, sings them quietly in her head and takes satisfaction that she's probably the only person in the room that knows them. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, she has a revelation. That's why the story is called Revelation. She, she gets struck by a blinding light and she has a vision of the kingdom of God. This is how O'Connor describes the, the vision. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it was a vast horde of souls rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash cleaned for the first time in their lives. Bands of black people in white robes, battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense, respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces even their virtues were being burned away. When Jesus sends the disciples to preach the kingdom of God as at hand, he sends them to preach it to the lost sheep. He sends them to preach it to O'Connor's battalions of freaks and lunatics. He sends them to the outgroup. That doesn't mean the gospel's not for the in-group. It just means they're often the last to respond to it. And it also means they can't receive it the way they're used to receiving things. Because of their great dignity, because of their good order, because of their common sense or their respectable behavior, which has got them so much elsewhere, won't get them anything here. That leads me to the last point, which is who deserves this good news that's being proclaimed? Jesus says this. He says, you received, to the disciples, you received without pay, give without pay. The only way you can become part of God's group 
is by receiving without pay. The club dues required to be part of this in-group. The virtues you might be most proud of, the traits and behaviors you and I spend most of our time cultivating, the achievements that open doors for us and make others jealous, suddenly those things become absolutely worthless in the kingdom of God. They lose all of their currency. Now that's, that's good news for the out-group that has never had those things. That's why there's a battalion of them leaping and clapping like frogs. That's why there's, they respond from the gut with screams of joy and singing of new songs. Because they never thought in a million years being on the outside their whole lives, they never thought in a million years God would show up and say, you belong to me, by the way. They never thought it. It's good news for the out-group who may have tried and failed to pay the club dues to get on the inside, but couldn't find the resources. It's good news for them, too. That's why Jesus says in the same gospel in Matthew chapter 21, that these kinds of people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, are pouring into the kingdom of God. And then he points to the Pharisees and he says, ahead of you. Ahead of you. As good news as it is for the out group, you can imagine how hard of a news it is for the in group. Who has to learn how to receive the kingdom of God without pay. They have to learn not to plead their virtues, nor require virtue of others. You can imagine for someone of great respectability, great achievement, great piety, how enormously difficult it can be to sing Rock of Ages from the heart. Nothing in my hands I bring. Not my citadel ring, my Oxford degree. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. You can imagine how hard that can be for them all of a sudden to live in a world you can't pay for, but you just have to receive it. What a leveling thing that can be. What a hard thing that can be for Mrs. Turpin. But just because the kingdom of God requires no payment from you, whether you're in the in-group or the out-group, it doesn't mean that it doesn't require payments at all. It does. In, the, in this upside-down kingdom, where the in-group is out and the out-group is in, and the upside-down kingdom of Jesus Christ, it's the king who pays the bill. For everyone. And he pays with his life. And I'll tell you why he does it. Because this world is a lot like Francois Clemens. God has been telling this world he loves it for a long time. And they just won't listen. And so the out group runs from him. And the end group says, look what we've done for you. Look what we've done for you. God's been telling this world he loves it for a long time. And we don't listen. So he had to say it in such a way that he could look the world in the eyes in such a way they could hear it. 
And do you know how he did that? He so loved the world, he sent his son. He said. And after a lifetime of reflecting on the cross, you know, the only man that made it to the cross on Good Friday was John. I enjoy saying this to my citadel cadets. Because there's still a lot of the old business down there. Women shouldn't be here. They're not as tough as the men. I do like to remind them the only ones brave enough to make it to the cross on Good Friday are the women. And John. John spends a lifetime reflecting on what it meant that Jesus died on the cross. What it meant that Jesus made the payment, you know. And after a lifetime of reflection, the end of his life, this is, this, this is what he said in his letter, 1 John. He said, you know, when I saw Jesus on the cross, I came to this conclusion. God is love. I didn't know it before, but when I saw it on the cross, when I saw Jesus, that's when I finally heard him say, I love you. But the only way you and I would get it is if is if something costly, something costly enough was laid down to finally arrest our attention, finally shake us out of our complacency, and finally say, this is, this is for me too. God so loved the world, he sent his son. The son so loved the world, he gave everything he had so that you could receive everything you need without payment. Right. Let me just give you... Uh, Two things in closing to think about. Here's, here's thing number one. Christians are far more careful in proclaiming God's love than God is. What do I mean by that? I mean that as I was watching that documentary about Fred Rogers, and he said, I like you just the way you are, and Francois Clemens said, nobody told me that before. I, I could feel an evangelical nervousness. But, but, make sure you, you take him to relevant portions of the New Testament so he can amend his life. And, and uh, well, yeah, it's kind of true that he likes you just the way you are, but you've got to change and all this stuff. I remember going to a homeless shelter once, and we wanted to do a Bible study there. And the director of a homeless shelter refused to let us do a Bible study in the homeless shelter. And this was her reason. What do you think they're going to do? You think they're going to join your church and give you money? She had a nervousness too. Don't, don't just swing in here and tell these people that you love them and that they're valuable. Because they're not going to be able to prove it to you. There's this nervousness. But I, 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 I would love for you, because we're talking about going out and being commissioned to our neighborhoods and our business, I would love for you to be as reckless in proclaiming God's love as God is. It's Romans chapter 5. It says, while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us in this. He gave his only son. And there is no parentheses that says, if you repent and bring your life into alignment with his morals. There's nothing in there that says that. It's a reckless proclamation of love, and it's smart. Because love does something rules can never do. Love buys you time and space. 
to grow up into a God-honoring person because you are in love with God. Love buys you time and it buys you space to be in a relationship with God. That's what it does. Rules clip time and clip space. The more you dump them on people, the more nervous they get, the more aware that they won't be able to live up to it, and all of a sudden you've got no time and no space to grow into a new person in relationship with God. And because he knows that, that's why he's so reckless proclaiming it. He has brought me coming in on 20 years of time and space. <laughs> and in those 20 years, some things have been brought into alignment that work, and I'm telling you, there's a ton left that's not. But I have time and space to grow into a person that God is calling me to be. But he does love me right now. You see, he loves me right now. He's not waiting to love me. He loves me right now. That's one thing. And here's the second thing. Uh, for those of you exploring Christianity, I, uh, I have been stunned. Coming in now my second year of college ministry, I am stunned by the number of young people I meet who have never, ever heard I love you from anyone. I'm stunned. And people are often driven to where I work to prove something to someone so they can get something like this and show it to their dad. And what they're hoping is dad is finally going to say, now you've done it. I love you now. And I have to give them the heartbreaking news. If you haven't heard it yet, you're not going to hear it. But I have good news for them as well, and I have good news for you. If you're one of these outgroup kinds of people, never felt on the inside, always felt in, always looking and longing and waiting for somebody to say, we like you as you are. We love you as you are. Uh, God has said that in his son Jesus on the cross, he has said irrefutably, he loves you right now. And anyone who's ever seen Jesus on the cross, really, from the gut and the heart, can never question that. Because <clears throat> that's what he's doing out there. And if you'd like to uh, receive that and walk more deeply in it, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people here that would love to help you do that. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for the goodness and mercy of Jesus. And uh, we pray that, that we would have the boldness to announce the coming of the kingdom of God really for all the wrong sorts of people. And that this wouldn't make us nervous, but, but joyful. That we have a God who is better than we thought he was. His love is broader than we anticipated. And pray for those uh, still wondering what to make of all of this. That the love of God, like, like the floodwaters in the state of South Carolina, uh, would begin to overwhelm those parts of their soul that are holding out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.